0: The actual, you know, agricultural resources of the Liverpool Plains are magnificent. I would have to say it is one of the most blessed agricultural areas I
1: have ever seen. All that is undone at one stroke of a pen by a minister that says, oh, let's put a gas field here. It's the fear of the unknown and no matter how many studies they do on it, they can't guarantee that if it leaks, that it will not destroy. We feel like we're fighting it on behalf of everyone.
0: Pretty much the whole of Australia loses out if the the soil and that that you know things are carried on here that shouldn't be, because there's certain areas that shouldn't be mucked with. Just about everything that we do at Dirty Linen and across the whole Deep in the Weeds food podcast network rests on farming. Without productive farmers, we don't have restaurants. We don't have those resonant, connected stories of cuisine and culture that we love so much and that we know you appreciate too. And, fundamentally, without farmers, we don't eat. It's basic. We also know that we need to cease coal and gas mining because of the emissions they create. The science is unequivocal. The catastrophic climate risks are too great. The move to net zero makes allowances for legacy mining, but it's clear that any new coal or gas extraction tips into dangerous territory. Given all this, we're keeping a close eye on the Liverpool Plains and the gas mining exploration licences held by energy giant Santos. Join us all week as we talk to people in the region who are likely to be impacted by any mining activities and are mobilising against them. It's an interesting coalition of farmers, bakers, townspeople, traditional owners, and long-time journalists and community members. What becomes clear in these conversations is that this is a local fight with broader implications. If you eat, if you live on earth, this fight matters. By the way, we've reached out to Santos for comment. We look forward to a response.
1: You know, you're talking about a very very complex landscape that's taken billions and billions of years to shape and all the all the arterial waterways and all the percolating fresh clean water that takes millions of years of percolating down through the mountains through the grasses through the soil which what we survive on but government making policy that say hey let's let's dig this stuff up we'll get 5 years of energy out of it but we'll leave it as a moonscape when when we're finished that's what we're talking about
0: The Liverpool Plains are colloquially known as the Black Soil Plains. The extraordinary quality of the region's soil for growing is remarked upon again and again. I've even heard it said that farmers come from other parts of Australia and drool over this black gold. There's no farmer who's more passionate about this precious resource than Scott McAlman, a fourth generation farmer who is using and caring for the land in a very different way from his forebears scott welcome to dirty linen
1: good morning denny and thank you very much pleasure to be on board
0: yeah well thank you for being part of this special series um, give us a little bit of um a, a, put us in the picture tell us about your farm and what it is you do there
1: yes well your introduction was uh, spot on it it really is a truly an amazing place the liverpool plains um, i think geographically historically um, it's, it's a region that would have um, endured a lot of volcanic activity you know, probably back in the dinosaur era, you know, and Australia was um, slowly uh, drifting north from the Antarctic and, uh, you know, a lot of temperate rainforests and very high rainfall was covering the country. And, you know, this region was probably uh, about where Tasmania was. And um, these huge, amazing uh, temperate forests were across the region. And with the volcanic activity um, and all the lava, um, that was flowing out from the volcanoes, um, that makes up the Liverpool Plains. We've got all these, uh, you know, volcanic ridges and mountain ranges interdispersed by uh, big valleys. And so those valleys um, filled up with the basalt, um, lava, and as that's taken million, millions of years to decay and break down, um, we've ended up with this quite incredible uh, volcanic black soil. And uh, as you describe it, it really is unique, very unique on the Australian landscape. You know, Australia is a very old continent, highly eroded, really not much mountain range to speak of, you know. So do we, we don't get the, um, you know, sort of high orographic rainfall influences that other countries get like North America, South America, Europe, you know, snow-capped mountains at, um, you know, 10,000 feet, um, you know, those, those geographic features um, have tremendous impacts on climate and good old Australia being a very, very flat continent, um, you know, our, our mountain ranges are eroded right down. We're pretty flat. Uh, so this is a unique area. We, we have very safe rainfall but predominantly, as you mentioned, the most amazing, unique and really fertile black soil, very complex region, um, lots of underground water, um, incredibly productive valley. Um, you know, we're only a, a small area um, on the scale of the whole of the nation, but we're very, very unique.
0: Scott, this is, I mean, you've painted such an incredible, deep, like, long historical picture of this region. I mean, was this dinner table conversation as you were growing up or, you know, were you inspired to look deeper into the, the heritage of what surrounds you?
1: I was inspired. Um, So as you mentioned, a fourth-generation farmer, my family and myself, we're all uh, out on the western plains of New South Wales, about 400 kilometres west of here, and so always had a huge attachment to land and to agriculture. Um, But as a little boy, uh, a couple of opportunities, I I came over here with my father. Um, And even as a small child, I was just absolutely blown away by the landscape. So where I lived was quite dry, very, very flat, very hot, a long way west, very different soil types. Um, and when I came over here and saw this just incredible black soil interdispersed with these amazing mountain ranges and, you know, as Dorothea McKellar describes it, um, you know, we learnt that palm at school and as a little boy, it, it, it just, um, I, I was mesmerised. And so at the back of my mind, uh, you know, you go into business, uh, in my case with my family, and um, I didn't think the opportunity would really ever arise to to get over here. It's extremely tightly held, very, very hard to buy into here. But um, through a few series of factors, like after our family succession and, um, you know, my parents had well and truly moved out of our business, um, an opportunity came up where my my wife and I thought, well, let's give it our best shot um, and and try and uh, invest and get over here. And we were lucky enough to um, find a property and uh, it was very expensive. Um, it's extremely tightly held as you mentioned so yeah we got over here and I still I still have to pinch myself we've been here uh, for close to 12 years now and, and uh, yeah it's just an incredible opportunity to be able to um, grow food here um, for the nation
0: I mean I'm a city girl and I appreciate that soil is everything but just give me a real for dummies sense of what makes it so good like is it you put in a seed and just, you know, it springs out of the ground. Like what difference does it make?
1: Yeah, they say you can plant a needle here and it'll grow a crowbar. But, yeah, look, the soil, <laughs> the soil, it, it just is incredible. I'll try, I'll try and describe it. So, you know, say you're playing in the park as a child and you've got your sandpit or, um, you know, you're looking at Granny's garden bed and, you know, you get your hands dirty and it's sort of soil. It's dirt. But when you look at this black soil, this black volcanic soil, it's like a sponge. Um, it's like if you're walking onto a soft tennis court or something. It's probably even softer than that. It's just the most incredible spongy soft soil. So it's called a vertisol. It's quite quite unique. There's only uh, small areas on the globe that have this unique vertisol soils. Uh, Ukraine has it. There's some parts in North America, some parts in Canada, but they're, they're quite unique in how they've formed. So glaciation in Northern America could have been glaciation here, but with the volcanic activity. So it's broken down basalt, and most soils in Australia, for example, are red, harder-setting sodic soils. So they've sort of broken down from different parent rock, like um, granite or sandstone. So, you know, sandstone soil would give you a very sandy soil. A granite soil gives you a sort of alluvial, uh, chalkier, whiter, lighter colour soil. So, but when you get to a basalt, a heavy basalt soil, it's it's sort of like the sweet spot in ground. It has it has the right amount of clay, silt, loam, and the makeup of the ground uh, gives um, like in soil you have positive and negatively charged charged. They're called cations. I don't want to get too technical, but in this soil, it's really highly charged. So, our cation exchange capacity is like over 100, most soils in Australia have a number of about 10. So the higher that cation number, it's a basic it's a basic measure of your natural fertility. And so when you're talking a soil that's over 100, uh, you know, it's it's off the scale. And so it's quite incredible. But what that does, that huge, uh, highly charged neg- uh, positive cation, it gives it incredible, just incredible moisture-holding capacity, meaning that when we get rainfall, uh, again, if you were playing in your park and you had, you know, 20 mils of rain and you came back two days later, you think, oh, it's dry. Um, here, every every drop of rain that, that falls, it's captured and the ground swells and it holds it. it. It probably is like putting a sponge in the bucket. You pull it out and the sponge is holding a credible amount of water. Well, that's what this soil does. And so from an agricultural perspective, um, you know, whether you're grazing livestock or the native animals or we're growing crops, uh, in between rain events, it, it can go f- for an amazing, incredible amount of time and it'll just hold the moisture. And so you can appreciate uh, the security that gives us uh, in this area to grow. We, we can grow two crops a year. We can grow winter crops here and we can turn around and grow a summer crop also on rainfall, no irrigation. So it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, wow, and I mean, it, it, it's funny. The image that comes to my mind is, you know, a violinist who's got this incredible, like, sixteenth-century instrument, and they now they now have the opportunity to play it. Like, that's how I think of you and your wife going into this incredible land. Like, when you when you go in there, you've got this unbelievable resource. Like, how do you then? look after it how do you get the best from it while still making sure that it's there to give you its best
1: yeah that's a good question and so look um i'd like to touch on where modern australian farming is and um (coughs) it it, we have incredible innovation in agriculture in australia like um, australian agriculture is not subsidized um so a vast all the american agricultural market is subsidised by the government. All of the EC is subsidised and a lot of other productive agricultural regions are subsidised. They're getting quite um, good assistance, uh, you know, to maintain food production. But here in Australia, that doesn't happen. And uh, most of our product, 78% of our product is for export. So we're competing on the world stage, you know, in the global market and, you know, with modern globalisation, you've got things moving all around the planet. and so we have to be really, really on our game. We have to be really smart, really innovative, really cover off in our risk management. Everything we do uh, fits into my whole big picture of landscape management. Um, I like to think of uh, what we do in our business that I'm rehydrating my, my my landscape, my my properties. I have three properties. And everything we do in our farming systems um it's, it's really quite complex, but it's all trying to mimic pretty well how nature intended it. And so that, you know, again, without going into huge detail, it basically in nature, nature will always provide, try and provide permanent ground cover. So, you know, you've all seen the pictures of a horrendous drought, of dust blowing across a bare paddock, uh, soil being lost, dust in the air, no water. Um, it's the opposite. You know, and, and this is really across Australia, agriculture is doing this. Businesses are trying to implement strategies, whether it's grazing or cropping, to maintain permanent ground cover, to uh, mimic if it was a grassland or it was lightly forested. Um, so, run their agricultural business that mimics or mirrors what was already there in that area. So, here in the Liverpool Plains, on our floodplains, they are covered in perennial. C4 grasses. So they're sort of a quite tall growing grass that were active and green in the summertime and would die down and be dormant in the wintertime. And so the dormant period is is the period that nature picks up its moisture, fills the soil profile, and allows that, that grass to be green and growing prolifically in the summer months. And again, you know, it, it, it acclimatises to the area. So with the sporadic rainfall uh and the moisture holding capacity that that green grass would thrive and uh you know the indigenous people um before us you know they they had um amazing um i suppose family structures and setups here in this region because it was so safe and so now you fast forward to today where you know we're feeding the globe we're feeding australia um that's that's how we farm we have um all our machinery is on what's called controlled traffic so we, we have to limit our soil compaction because the ground's very soft so every single implement is trafficking just the little wheel tracks and all the cropping zone is not trafficked at all. Um, we maintain permanent ground cover so every crop that's harvested, all the stubble from that crop, the residue from the crop that's left behind and falls out of the harvester is all is all left on top of the soil and then the next crop we have really, really unique Australian-made planters that are discs, they're not tines so the disc can cut through the heavy residue and place the seed in there and so it's protected and the soil's protected and it keeps the soil cool and it also creates a really good food source for all the soil, uh, mycorrhizal fungi and biota and microorganisms and the humus and everything that's in there and the roots of the plants, it's all part of the big system, it's just mimicking nature and we're capturing carbon. So, you know, in this environment here, we can actually improve on what was there. So, you know, past past European practices, it would have been place, in place prior to uh, probably the last 30 years. You know, poor, poorer farming practices would have been slowly degrading the land. And um, now, you know, the pennies dropped. I mean, as, as I think pressure came on and, um, you know, the e- economics come into play and droughts and everything else, Australian agriculture has got really, really on the front foot, and and Danny, that leads me into our problem. There's there's a huge disconnect with government policy. You know, they they just don't seem to be appreciative, understanding of what goes into food production and the tech, the technical aspect, the sustainable aspect, and the mim- mimicking of our landscape. Everything we're doing is for the betterment of, it's not only for my business, it's not only for my region, my district, my valley here on the Liverpool Plains or for New South Wales, it's for Australia. Like everything we grow and my neighbour grows and then beyond the district, it's drawing in carbon dioxide every single day. Every day the sun comes up, it's respiring, the crops, drawing in huge amounts of the sun's energy, transferring that energy into glucose and sugar, cycling it back into the soil. And then you overlay that with all the amazing things we're doing in sustainable production practices in trying to produce really healthy, dense, nutrient-dense product. Um, and as I mentioned, rehydrating our landscape, making an environment that's wonderful for all our birds, our koalas, our kangaroos, emus, um, all, the, all the little um, animals we have and critters in the soil, all that. He's undone at one stroke of a pen, by a minister that says, "Oh, let's put a gas field here." You know, it—it's it, incredible to think that here we are in 2023, and these decisions are being made, and so just so disconnected with what is happening. Uh, you know, I think globally, with businesses generally trying to get on the front foot and deal with the impacts of climate change.
0: So, I mean, it, it does seem unthinkable that this land would be used once for something for extracting gas when you when you know I understand the depth of your relationship with it you know the cycles that you go through with it um, this very future focused approach to looking after it I mean what I can hear your sort of frustration and bafflement, I guess. But how does it make you feel when you you, you are faced with this disconnect?
1: Look, it makes me furious. Um, I think like a lot of modern, modern Australians now in business, we're very well educated. Uh, we do have a good handle on the big picture. And, and, and I'm not just talking about agriculture. This is across the board. And look, the disconnect on policy, not always, but it, look, it makes me furious that uh, you know we have government, both federally and state, that are in quite amazing leadership positions, and I just can't understand that they, you know, they, there's not more consultation, uh, communication to us. And I am I know why it happens. I mean, unfortunately, and I'm going to say it. You know, companies like Santos that are that are funding and driving. Their agenda, you know, they they really are driving their own policy, and it's and it's money. It's you know they will prop up government, and they'll drive their agenda. They come into regions and they pay for their their social. Well, they greenwash, they whitewash, they try to get social license, but I can tell you it's it's not happening. Um, so yeah, I, I am really furious um, because we work so hard, and and I'm genuinely saying it is for all Australians what it is we're doing. Um, Impacts of climate change are really real, you know. And out in regional Australia, we're not buffered by the sea breeze. You know, or, you know, say the hundred k region, there where most of our population lives right around Australia, you do have that buffering from sea breeze And once you cross the um, Blue Mountains and you come out into um, the regions, uh, you know, we don't have that buffering effect, and so we really notice it. Like in the last thirty years. Um, it is quite incredible how much climatically things are changing. Uh, rainfall's changing, temperatures especially. S- temperatures are really ramp- ramping up and you can appreciate yourself. You know, if you're lying out on the beach on a hot day and the best sun, you really cooks you. Well, the same happens to our plants. You know, we're not we're not sort of getting the temperate uh, milder conditions we used to get, especially here on the Liverpool Plains. Like Our altitude's a little bit higher um, than most farming regions, and uh, but we're losing that. Um, So it's vital, it's really vital that modern farming systems are putting in strategies that are dealing with this and we need government on board. Um, Like if we're in the 1970s and there wasn't as much education in process and that, you know, you look back to energy crisis of the past, you could understand if something was to happen like that back then. But now I'm just, I, I am furious because we have so many alternatives and I know there's challenges but every day, every single day when I um, listen to the radio, I turn on the news, um, I look you know, look on my phone, there's stories about uh, new processes being rolled out uh, in relation to energy. Um, you know, you've got guys like Saul Griffin talking about electrifying everything. Um, you know, there's, there's solar things going up, there's wind, um, there's all sorts of things happening. So we have alternatives you know, we've got batteries. We've we've got this new dispatchable energy system that's changing really, really rapidly, and and the gas industry just doesn't fit in that jigsaw. Um, the fallout from it, like you mentioned, Denny, you know, the, this short-term fix just for so much damage, just so much incredible damage to 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 us, uh, to our regions, to our landscape, to our people, to our atmosphere. Um, the list is endless, and. Uh, yeah, so, so it makes me really, really furious.
0: I mean, I think about, I don't know what a truck looks like that, you know, is able to drill into the ground, but I imagine it's pretty big and pretty heavy. And just to think about it rolling across this soil, compacting it, um, just careless. Uh, you just can't imagine it. Um, you can't imagine them applying the same care and attention to this resource, um, this ground resource. Like what, what do we stand to lose if these gas projects go ahead, Scott?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. So that's one truck. So once the once the gas industry comes in, its, it's, it's tentacles really expand rapidly. Um, so they polka dot the landscape. Um, they might have them every 500 metres in grids, square grids. So you can picture the jigsaw of every single drilling truck drilling down uh, possibly 1,000, 1,500 metres they're going down, uh, right down into the um, coal seams um, underlying all the plains here. And uh, all those coal seams have, are laden with um, water, but the water in the coal seam is quite toxic. It has um, high levels of uranium, uh, huge amounts of salt, um, lots of um, uh, sort of, um, I suppose, toxic, toxic metals in it, um, like you know, high, high amounts of aluminium, zinc um, and the like that's not really compatible with life and I mean you know it's not as if it's that water has taken probably billions of years to percolate down there and it's it's down there and it's it's part of the it's part of the makeup of our uh deep soil topography and so it's it's here it's incredibly complex uh for them to extract gas they drill down to that coal seam and they depressurize it and they, they depressurize it by pulling out all that really deep lower groundwater and we're talking billions and billions and billions of megalitres, olympic pool uh, olympic pool holds 2 megalitres, so they'd be pulling out just one one hole and and picture there's going to be thousands of them they're going to be pulling out uh, probably four or five mega uh, olympic pools per day per hole in australia the driest country on the planet you know we have low rainfall and once they do that The top alluvial water, the water that we all need to survive on, the water that um, I was just out here early this morning, I just let my dogs off and I let the chooks out and I turned the tap on and filled up their little trough. And then my boar, my boar just flicked on and I turned that tap on. That boar feeds my house, feeds my family. It keeps my farm going. And as my neighbour does, he has one too. And down the track, we all have boar water um, and we have rainwater tanks. But between rain events, the rainwater tanks... I've got 120,000 litres of rainwater in my house, but often that will go empty if it's dry and we switch the house over to bore water. We, we can't live here, Denny, without bore water. Uh, most of inland Australia can't survive. So, you know, when bore water, I suppose, they discovered that, that vital asset, it's just gold. You know, a couple of hundred years now when they realised this beautiful source of fresh, clean, crystal clear, beautiful water, uh, It's only about 40 metres, yeah, about 100 feet down. So that type of alluvial water is really beautiful, pristine water. Um, But what happens, once they depressurise the coal seam and start pulling up gas, a few things happen. So as that process happens, the gas, a lot of the gas, um, really highly concentrated methane, leaks into the upper aquifers. Um, But the upper aquifer also, because you've got the planet spinning and gravity... Pushing down, that water has 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 then realised that um, you know you got this depressurised zone below it, so the top alluvial water starts to trickle down through porous rock, and finds finds its way into the bottom aquifer and becomes contaminated, but it empties the top one. It empties the beautiful water, um, and you know this is a you know, so like the Great Artesian Basin uh, here here in the Nemoy, the Liverpool Plains the Nemoy Valley, um, we're sitting under one of the biggest. Uh, natural re, uh, uh, deposits of natural bore water in Australia—it's it's just huge. So all that would be lost. Um, it gets contaminated. Um, the salt, the toxic salt, and the toxic metals I mentioned come to the surface. Um, they have—they had like a, a ten-point plan. The gas industry and point ten, which they said they'd never have to use, would be. Just sit the salt on this on top of the surface and put the contaminated water maybe in a river, um, but they said, "I oh, will never get there. We'll have strategies in place that we'll be able to deal with it." Well, you fast forward now, 30 years later, we're at we're at point 10. They haven't come up with any any way of feasible way of dealing with the billions and billions and billions of litres of toxic water. So right now in southern Queensland, we've got toxic water um, starting to cause huge problems up there. And then another problem I haven't mentioned, as as the top aquifer uh, percolates down to the bottom aquifer, so you lose that water. What happens then? All this beautiful black, soft, spongy soil that I talked about starts to slump. Um, it's like uh, if you had a rainbow cake and you took out the bottom, the bottom piece of the cake, you know, the top piece is going to sink, isn't it? It's going to drop, drop down, and that's what happens to the soil. So, you know, you're talking about a very, very complex landscape that's taken billions and billions of years to shape, and all the all the arterial waterways and all the percolating fresh, clean water that takes millions of years of percolating down through the mountains, through the grasses, through the soil, down to the depths, filtered, clean, which what we survive on. Got government making policy that say, "Hey, let's let's dig this stuff up. We'll get five years of energy out of it, but we'll leave it as a moonscape." When, when we're finished. That's what we're talking about.
0: I don't know. I'm not often lost for words, but I – and I'm thinking, you know, my I'm thinking I'm a journalist. Like, we're always looking for both sides of the story. Uh, but I just honestly do not see another side to this one. It just can't happen.
1: I know. I know, Danny. And it's really frustrating. Like, you know, I'm just one guy in the picture and I know you're talking to others – in this series, and um, you know, I, I get on Twitter each day, and I drop a message to our new our new premier. You know, Chris seems like Chris Min seems like a good guy. So come on, Chris, you know you're a well educated guy. I mean, what part don't you get? You know, you've got a family, you've got a beautiful wife, um, you're in a new role, you're leading our state. Um, surely you want to be on the front front foot and um, and show some leadership, and just please stop taking the money from this company. And, 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 you know, you've got some wonderful alternatives being thrown at you every day. And I want to be part of that ride. You know, I want to be part of that journey. <clears throat> you know, we genuinely want to do things that are better for all Australians. You know, we all love going to a great cafe. We love sitting down to a beautiful meal and a beautiful coffee um, and taking the sense of beautiful food. And, you know, that's part of – that's who we are. We're humans. We've got to eat. And we need that. The energy mix can be sorted out. You know, this, this this, just take take at all costs, uh, ruin, you know, rake, ruin and pillage in our progress with a smile. You know, I just can't believe, like, you know, a lady like Tanya Plibersek, you know, she's energy minister for the federal government, elected in in their brand new role, standing up with the new prime minister, Anthony Albanese, saying, you know, we're going to start dealing with climate change. We're going to start implementing some modern practices. We're going to make some changes. They're not. They're not doing it, and it just defies logic. I, I just, it is so infuriating. And um, you know, I've got three beautiful children um, in their twenties. Um, two, two, was all semi attached to rural businesses. Um, you know, one's in the medical practice, one's in banking, um, the other one's in um, graphic graphic design. Um, you know, and they've, they've all got young families now and uh, and we're just one family, all of us, you know, for everyone in the city, you know, we, we love, uh, I think, you know, t- we, we're building connections back with the city and rural, rural areas and modern uh, dispatchable energies actually in a funny sort of way have ways of pulling us back together together. Um, because, you know, we can, we're doing it so much smarter, we can do it with less impacts. And, you know, sure, some of the new energy systems aren't without their faults, but they're a long, long way better than where we were, um, you know. Uh, so I just want to see Australia be on the front foot and weaning ourselves as best we can off, off fossil fuels.
0: So, Tanya Plibersek, she's the Minister for Environment and Water. I mean, water is obviously key to this conversation. I mean, obviously the environment is uh, key to every conversation really. Has um, has Tanya Plibersek been to the region, had a chat to um, people who are concerned about um, Santos and its activities?
1: Not that I'm aware of, Danny. No. And as I mentioned, that's where it really has become infuriating because if you could just have the time um, or if they'd make the effort to come out, and and live and see what we are seeing and and actually really paint the picture clearly to them and say, look, this is what we stand to lose. You know, if you look at the positives, uh, well, I wouldn't call it positive, but, you know, say, okay, you're wanting to extract this source of energy for this certain, you know, this small window. Um, It's not a transition fuel. Um, There's that much information out there. The science is really, really clear. I mean, here we're we're in a fairly low voting demographic, but we still managed to pull this region 23,000 submissions um, to the Independent Planning Commission on this, you know, when gas was put on the table for this region. We stood up and we we really put a good argument up, very, very sound science, very big picture um, illustrations of the downwind impacts. Um, not only for us in agriculture, but for other businesses, for rural towns that are all in borewater, for all our indigenous community, we had people from all walks of life that are, uh, you know, managing landscape uh, practices. We had indigenous communities talking about long cultural heritage and their future heritage and their attachment to land. Um, the list was actually quite endless, and it was it was really an amazing process to sit. And hear all the stories, and you pulled it all together, and you think, "Wow, wow, we'll be right. We'll be right here. Um, common sense will prevail." Um, it's a really clear car- clarion call. Uh, I would defy anyone to hear what we've just heard by those twenty-three thousand submissions that you could um, not hear that canary at the end of the, at the end of the coal mine, so to speak, screaming. Uh, you know, don't do this. And yet here we are. Here we are, sort of five years down the track. And stupidly, it was granted uh, off the back of the Morrison government. It, uh, it happened actually a couple of days before IPC were about to deliver their yes or no. And Scott Morrison, the then Prime Minister, stood up and said, we're going to have a gas-led COVID recovery. And we just knew it was a done deal. So that obviously been offered a lot of money, money the coalition government, I'd say a huge amount of money. And that money's obviously transgressed across to the Labor government because we're still in the same spot. And um, you know, we—I'm a busy businessman, but I just seem to spend my entire life as consumed fighting this industry and fighting our government, and trying to get clear air and a clear message um, of the absurdity of this whole situation.
0: Uh, I literally felt ill as you were describing that money trail, Scott. That is, yeah. These people on our behalf are custodians of the resources of this country and to be let down so badly and for you, you know, who's feeding Australia, feeding the world, to be putting all of your time into this, uh, it just doesn't seem right.
1: No, and it does, and that's the word. It is really let down and, it, you know, it's a stroke of a pen, um, it is just so disappointing, yeah. And it is—it is, it is a real disconnect. Um, and no, so they haven't visitors. Look, we do get politicians out here, obviously, and um, often they'll, um, you know, you'll get the you'll get the nod and the yes, and I will deal with it. But unfortunately, the money uh, is talking and keep winning. So we need we need to keep advocating. We keep we, we're on the front foot as best we can. Um, we won't be beaten. When we were defiant, absolutely defiant, and we're united, um, you know, we're going to fight this. But it gets back to what you said earlier, Danny. It's not as if there's there's not an alternative. It's not as if we're right in a, uh, in a in a corner as a human race on this. I mean, we're just talking about this nasty little bit of energy transition. I mean, you, if you, if you, again you sit down and start listening to the science and the big picture, couple of things, couple of things here. There's not a gas shortage in Australia. Australia's floating in gas. There's that much gas they pull out of the Pilbara over on the northwest coast of Western Australia. It's ridiculous. So that all goes to export and they do use some domestically. Here on the east coast, a huge amount of gas comes out of Bass Strait and out of Victoria, um, and and astronomical amounts of gas out of Queensland. And when we're floating in gas, uh, you talk to economists out of Canberra like Bruce Robinson, um, incredibly educated on this whole... Industry and where it lies globally, uh, gas gas is in, in huge decline. There's a glut of gas, gas globally. Um, even third world countries that were relatively dependent on gas are weaning off. Um, you know, so globally there's investment in dispatchable re, renewable energy systems. Um, everywhere you look on the globe, they're coming off gas and. And then, even if you look here domestically at our electricity supply, the government will keep saying, "Oh, but we need the gas, or we need it to run these gas uh, power stations as interim interim shortfalls for our electricity um, as we shut down the Liddells, the coal fired power stations that have come to end of life." But while they run, while those gas plants need gas, it's incredibly tiny amount, like about four percent of the market. So the gas, the gas shore up. Uh, power station, it's there as a backup, you know, when the lights are really on or a big heat wave or something, it's like 4%, so it's tiny. So we have that. We we have oodles of gas, Um, but the industry makes out it's like 90, we need this massive amount of gas. Um, It's absolute rubbish, it's lies. Um, So you've got to remember all the gas being uh, drilled out of the ground that's ruining my farm, my landscape, my region, all of southern Queensland, the Darling Downs right now, that gas, uh, about seventy-eight percent of it is going to export, um, so it's all going offshore. Every single gas well is leaking methane. Huge amounts of methane, the most toxic greenhouse gas there is, that sits up in the stratosphere uh, at about sixty thousand feet, and it'll take a hundred years to break down. Um, that's causing huge damage. We've got, we've got. Uh, Rivers like the Condomine percolating gas bubbles up like it's coming up through the pores in the ground as they denitrify, depressurize as I mentioned earlier. Um, so gas vines comes up through the porous cracks where they where they drill. Um, I, I just can't be- begin. I'm just trying to get people's head around the fallout of this. It's it's like a nuclear waste zone, um, and the the gas industry are very very good at um, you know. We've all seen the, um, the ads on TV over the years, um, you know, the, the ballet dancers in the blue suits and isn't gas wonderful? They call it natural gas. Um, yeah, but the only natural thing about it is that it's sitting sitting down at 1,000 metres below the ground and that's where it needs to stay.
0: Uh, yeah, Scott, let's finish on a good note. Tell us what you got growing at the moment.
1: Yeah, let's finish on a good note. Look, beautiful day, beautiful crisp autumn day here. Um, across the Liverpool Plains, I'm looking out the office, my office window, and um, the Black Soil Valley. We have um, sorghum and mung beans, and the harvesters are sitting down there. It's a crisp morning, big dew this morning, but um, we'll hopefully get get the harvesters going um, around midday when it warms up. We've got planters hooked up at Disc Seeders, uh, planting into wheat stubble at the moment. We're putting in legume crops, all for human consumption. Um, so, another busy day. Busy day here, and as I look across to my neighbours, I can see their production getting ready to wind up for the day. Um, and it's a beautiful sunny autumn day, and uh, and that's why I want to keep it. I can see kangaroos actually hopping off in the distance, about um, 500 metres away from my house, sitting under some gum trees. And um, all the magpies and the birds are busy singing here this morning. Um, and and that's how we want to keep it, Danny.
0: Love it. Well. I can hear magpies here in Melbourne, so I feel like the disconnect between city and country is not impossible to bridge. Um, thank you so much for laying it out for us with such clarity and passion. Um, and, yeah, thanks for fighting the good fight on behalf of all of us. Um, definitely standing with you.
1: Thanks so much, Danny, and I love hearing that you're standing with us. I love the um, support and uh, united as all Australians. Thank, thanks so much for the opportunity and, yeah, let's hope we can all beat this and, and, and move forward. Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Danny. Cheers. Bye-bye.
0: This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives